I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. everyone and welcome to the history of england episode 320 justice and the english state just a quick recommendation for you all before i start michael mccormack got in touch with me and shared some of the paintings he'd done inspired from history and from the podcast and i enjoyed them very much so if you are a history or an art buff i suggest you go along to michaeljamesmccormack.com and have a look. I'll put the link on the post for today's podcast. Okay, so last time everyone we talked about the stresses and strains on the late Elizabethan state and hopefully added a bit of colour to the idea that the last decade or so of Elizabeth's reign was a sort of golden age. Obviously, I'm the kind of compliant person that hides my head in horror at the ever-present marketing blurb of the untold story or myth-busting, but if you can't beat them, might as well join him. So this week, we continue the untold story of Elizabethan England, and you and I, we are going to bust those myths, ladies and gentlemen. Bust those myths. So, to add to the pressures we talked about of war, death, riot and poverty, we must add crime, and also how successful or otherwise was the Elizabethan state in dealing with it. As I suggested last time, it appears that there was a crime wave between 1580 and about 1630, with a dramatic fall from 1640. However, it's worth thinking about population, by the way, where growth that started around 1550 seems to finally level off around 1630. Just saying is all, just saying. I mean, I know correlation doesn't mean causation, as I learned from David Mitchell on Would I Lie to You, but here it might just play a role. Certainly, the increase in vagrancy gave Elizabethan worthies the feeling that all about them was a rising tide of anarchy and that the many-headed monster of the poor was about to get them. Some of this was reflected in a mania with true crime in print and pamphlets, just like today. This is a period where the use and production of print was exploding. We must talk about literacy and culture sometime, but as a headline rate, David Cressy tried to measure literacy by the number of people who could actually sign their name and concluded by the end of the reign of Elizabeth the percentage of the total population able to sign their names would have been less than 30% of men and 10% of women. Given that the rate amongst gentlemen and women would have been far higher, this throws a bit of doubt on the amount of amount ordinary folks were able to read all the pamphlets available. However, they existed and were around, and you need to bear in mind that writing rates are different to reading rates. And anyway, 
Even reading was not necessarily the private activity we nowadays imagine it to be. Back in the day, folks would gather in the inn and in the boozer and on the Sabbath and the literate would read aloud or sing to their fellows. The plethora of ballads, libels, new broadsheets and pamphlets are an indication of the growth of a kind of public space of shared news and comment. I am put in mind of that Tom Hanks film, quite recent at the time of writing, called News of the World. It is a jolly good film if you've not seen it, so if you get the chance, you should. Anyway, Tom makes a few quid, or bucks, should I say, by travelling round the country reading the news to a willing and eager audience. Similar things happened on a local level in Elizabethan England. So, thanks a lot, Tom, and hello to Jason Isaacs. Anyway, why am I telling you all this? Are you in the wrong podcast episode? Well, one of the pamphlets that went viral was called A Caveat or Warning for Common Cursitors by Thomas Harmon. This was one of the earliest in a series of pamphlets that sought to expose criminals and warn the public about the threat of itinerant men and women to be on their guard, to make sure they didn't become gulls, as the target of thieves were called. It was a genre that attracted the same obsession as the true crime podcast category, rogue literature it was called. On the front of this particular pamphlet is a woodcut. On one side of the woodcut it shows a man called Nicholas Blunt wearing smart, high-status clothes. Now Harmon's intention is to give the honest reader, or gull, an introduction to the tricks of the trade and also to the cant of the dishonest. Cant being the word that tricksters used for their lingo. So, here he is saying, beware of the well-dressed villain, trying to convince you, through his clothes, that he's a decent chap, but just fallen on hard times. In his smart clothes, Blunt is described as an upright man, a chief of the beggars. On the right of the woodcut, our anti-hero is decked out instead as a counterfeit crank, a beggar that feigned epilepsy to illicit arms. He presents a shocking spectacle, dressed in rags with mud and blood on his face. Apparently, Ben Jonson, the playwright, used such themes in The Alchemist and Volpone. I've never read a single line of either, I am ashamed to say, partly because I've seen the suffering of my fellow schoolmates who were forced to. I'll pop the woodcut on the website. There's a good page on Wikipedia to boot, actually, about all the lingo, or the cant. Bawdy baskets were female vagabonds. Doxes were female companions of vagabonds. Rufflers were sturdy rogues who begged from the rich and stole from the poor. Priggers of prancers were horse thieves, and so on. The point is that Elizabethans believed they were in the middle of a crime wave and sensationalist literature didn't help. Sensationalist literature rarely does, I guess. But alongside this, there was a growing thirst for reporting from cases going through the courts. Witch trials were widely reported, although comparatively rare in England. Another rich vein was to publish the last speeches of those condemned to die. There's a religious as well as a moral aspect to the way murderers were perceived. They were anti-Christian, as well as a threat to the stability of society. 
the absolute number of crimes is horribly difficult to calculate. Edward Hext, a JP in 1590, claimed that less than one in five crimes actually reached court and were therefore recorded. Now, while he may be jumping to conclusions that this is because England had such an unprofessional law enforcement system, and that's true by modern standards, it's probably that in Elizabethan society, everything was much more local and discretionary, much more personal. So, the vast majority of criminal prosecutions depended on private initiative in the absence of a police force. The expense of going to court was substantial, and so many would look to mediation to resolve the problem before the case came to court, or very far through the process. And the system very much encouraged this approach. In addition, there is an absolute mishmash of jurisdictions and courts in England, so gathering data from all the different sources is nigh on impossible. And so you are left with using figures from courts where we do have evidence and extrapolating or assuming they're typical. Our basic assumption, I think, is that Elizabethan England was a very violent place and maybe contemporaries would have agreed. It's worth noting that the vast majority of indictments were for property crime, 80-90% to 90% of them. But homicide was also significant and followed the profile we've spoken about of a rising crime from 1580 to 1640 and then a long, permanent decline into the 18th century. But look, this is a podcast, so I am honour bound to give you the best guesses I have seen. K.J. Kesselring puts the Elizabethan homicide rate at roughly six homicides per 100,000 people each year at their height in the 1580s, though the rate then fell to about five homicides in 100,000 by the end of the reign. I have seen higher estimates, but probably less reputable, to be honest, of 10 in 100,000. So those don't sound like a golden age of stability. But it depends a little bit on where you're standing or what your perspective is. And I might give you an idea how it compares. Because I reckon we all consider that the early modern period was a crime-ridden one. Although I've never been quite sure how people think about this. But there was a report on stabbings in London recently, a nasty statistic. And the tenor of the response followed the things were better in the past trope. So... By comparison with many parts of Europe then, at the time, a rate of 5 in 100,000 looks pretty good, despite the panic in England. Rates in part of Italy and France reached 40 to 60 killings per 100,000. Rates in Stockholm for the 1590s were around 36 in 100,000, though I assume it's hard to use an urban rate in comparison with a country-wide one. For comparison with today, the 5 in 100,000 rate doesn't look too awful either. After all, it's about the same rate as the US, though European rates tend to be somewhat lower, and the UK is currently 1.2 in 100,000. But the super summary then is that it's easy to overemphasise, in fact, the violence of the past. One further point. Although Elizabethan concerns with vagrancy sound ultra-hysterical to the modern ear, there was, of course, a connection between vagrancy and crime. The prevalence of property crime rather than murder suggests a population that was forced to move for work, 
people on the move in a world which stressed the need to stay at home in the home parish had to fend for themselves. There's a fascinating study that looks at the location of crime and finds a concentration on the roads around London and part of that at least seems to be people on their way to London to look for work. The nature of criminal prosecutions show that the profile of crime had changed by the end of the Tudor century and had become heavily focused on the poor. An analysis of prosecutions in East Sussex show that 75% of those convicted were labourers. In medieval England, that had not been the case so much. Offenders were often the village elite who seemed to move in and out of crime as circumstances dictated. And you might remember those stories of noble criminals who actually made up the majority of organised crime. By 1600, organised crime was very rare outside of London. And then also there's that medieval tradition of aristocratic criminals, which had largely disappeared also by this stage, the end of what someone described as fur-collar crime, which I have to say is as fine a piece of copywriting as you could wish for. This association of crime with the labouring classes is part of a wider trend of social stratification accentuated by the economic winners and losers thing. The rich got richer, the poor got poorer. So, what we need to move on to talk about here is how the English state responded to what was clearly a time of very considerable social stress, as shown last week by poverty and riot, and this week in crime. Now, as it happens, the very, very famous E.P. Thompson did once comment on the English state in the 18th century. Edward was a thoroughgoing Marxist and brilliant historian who wrote one of those books everyone is required to read, The Making of the English Working Class. According to another thoroughly inspirational historian, Steve Hindle, Edward declared that the English state was weak in its bureaucratic and nationalising functions due to three key weaknesses of the 18th century English state. Firstly, they were reluctant to resort to ruthless repression in periods of public disorder, which you might remember as an interesting point of comparison, actually. Secondly, they were too attached to the liberties of their subjects and the rule of law. And finally, they didn't have an effective bureaucracy. Now, we might consider if these three attributes are, in fact, not advantages, and I am confident it will turn out to be the case because this is the view of Steve Hindle. And Steve Hindle has a brain too large to carry around on one neck, so he has to keep his head in a motorised buggy. But I would like to give you my story of why these factors were in fact advantages, specifically in connection with criminal justice. Now, bearing in mind that you are already expert in the administration of morals and sex through the church courts, which we did back in September 2019, I shall focus on secular justice. Now, on that bureaucracy thing from our second favourite Marxist historian, it is very difficult to argue with Teddy Baby, and the word that comes to mind to describe Tudor justice is, well, ramshackle, let's say. I'm going to read you a quote from a very grumpy observer who thought the petty courts really ought to be more dignified than they were. You might or might not know that the inn was a very important structure in most English towns. They were often the largest structure there and fulfilled a whole range of functions. And as the most substantial place available, 
the petty sessions of the courts would often take them over. So, you get this lovely image of the magistrate carrying out the solemn business of the delivery of state justice in the middle of an inn among, according to the disgusted observer, the smoking of pipes, the clattering of pots and the noise and ordure of a narrow room infecting with drinking and a throng. The ranter went on to rant a little bit more. The magistrate should sit aloft and conspicuous upon the bench, as is becoming a place of judicature, and not be obliged, as may be seen sometimes, to hold a glass in one hand while he signs a warrant with the other. Though much more eminent was he, who to show the steadiness of his hand, writ and signed a warrant upon the heaving belly of a boggy hostess. I do like that quote, and let me digress slightly by mentioning that one of the things it also demonstrates is just how closely integrated with the daily lives of the English and their drink. I've just done a shedcast on the topic of the English and their drink, as it happens, and one of the features of the centuries is how in medieval and early modern times, every time was drinking time. I dug out a nice quote from a Frenchman called Jean-Vin de Rochefort, who visited England in the 1690s and remarked wearily that no kind of business is transacted in Inglaterre without the intervention of pots of beer. They had the right idea back then. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Anyway, where was I? Oh yes, ramshackle. Now look, far be it from me to suggest that this is the typical stage for all English justice. The petty sessions were, after all, the lowliest of all royal courts. Nothing like the dignity of the royal benches at Westminster Hall. Although, to be honest, Westminster Hall sounds only slightly less chaotic than Welford Road when the Tigers are playing the Saints on Cup Day. You've got the hall all cut up into different courts, a bunch of blokes selling books and kit on the side, evil-looking folks drifting around outside with straw sticking out of their shoes to indicate that their testimony, any testimony, can be had for a very reasonable fee, Gov. But probably they weren't all boozing, at least. But the thing about the justice system was that at a local level, it was in the main operated by unpaid magistrates, carrying out the job because they thought they ought, a matter of their status and the duty attached to it. And anyway, someone had to keep the unruly masses in check. These people, then, are the justices of the peace. I've gone on about it before, but the JP is part of the genius of the English system. The alternative might be paid officials, for posts that would probably therefore have been sold on the basis that the officeholder could make a nice, tidy profit out of it, 
which doesn't lend itself to equitable and fair justice. It might also have become hereditary, as it was in Scotland, for example, making it impossible to remove the incompetent and therefore not a great way of enforcing efficiency and fairness again. Anyway, let's take a step back to consider where the JP fitted into the whole apparatus. At the centre in London, we've got the various courts of royal justice, the equity courts of chancery and star chamber and the court of requests, and the common law courts of common pleas and the king's bench. I am not going to warble on about these, because I'm sure we've talked enough about the growth of royal justice before. What I'm really interested in here is how criminal justice was conducted in the badlands, the provinces, where, of course, our knuckles drag unavoidably on the floor and we can barely speak English anyway. But it's worth noting that one of the important things about the development of central justice by this time is that the permanent institutions had allowed the development of expertise, of yearbooks which kept a record of cases and therefore case law, on the inns of court where legal professionals were trained in the law courts where judges developed their expertise of the law. Twice a year, then, judges came out from the centre to hear important cases in both civil and criminal cases, felonies by and large. The country was divided into six circuits, hence the phrase circuit judges. The court sessions of these circuit judges were called assizes, and they were, by and large, not ramshackle, and indeed were designed to be anything other than ramshackle. The assizes were not just about the law. They were basically the visit to the county town of the majesty of the state at the centre in all its frippery. Trumpeters and spearmen provided by the sheriff. Sermons to start off proceeding, robed judges. We are talking majesty, spectacle, ceremony to thoroughly overawe the bumpkins. In fact, one clergyman in 1678 spoke of the awful solemnities to overawe defendants of low and common education. But if I was a defendant, I would be tempted to tell them where they could stick their low and common education, but I don't suppose that's how Tudor England worked. The Assizes were an event, capital E, capital, well, V, I suppose. Everyone who was anyone was there, discussing business, making marriages alliances, spreading a bit of goss. Often there were balls and concert. It really was something of a hoolie. Now, this was the opportunity for the centre to speak to the regions. But, more importantly, and this is a point I need you to understand, even if you have to hold your head in the loo and pull the chain a couple of times to make sure it's gone in, it was also a chance for the region to speak to the centre. Here, the JP's Book of Orders, their instruction manual, if you like, might be communicated to JP's as part of their training. This might cover the latest legislation or changes in the way the law was to be administered. It might be about the way the militia was to be raised and trained. Seriously, dealing with criminals was just one part of the assize. And then on the other side, JPs would feed back to assize judges how the country was responding to legislation, the state of law and order, the attitudes that were driving local opinion. They might respond 
to specific queries that the assize judges had been tasked to investigate with them. There were two more types of court in addition to the county assizes. Every three months, the justices of the peace, the magistrates, were required to hold quarter sessions of the court. The crimes they covered were less important than at the assizes, usually petty offences. Once again, these sessions were not just courts. They were occasions to carry out the business of local government and to take the temperature of the region. General issues about order and disorder were put to grand juries, juries of presentment, you might say, people of the county, or indeed hundred, who fed back on things like law and order, progress of poor law implementation, feedback from parish constables and church wardens, the progress of and need for road repairs, all sorts of local administration. Still, there was too much business to get done, even with quarter sessions, and so was born the petty sessions, which started to grow in Elizabeth's reign, monthly courts run again by the JPs for smaller cases. This kind of court might meet in the local inn and be the object of our ranters' disapproval for their basic informality. There are actually a mess of other courts at the same time, overlocking franchises of all kinds. So there are manorial courts, courts elite, borough courts, franchise courts, but seriously, I'm not going to overgild the lily here. Many of these, especially manorial courts, were beginning to lose their authority and remit. So, let's return to the efficient bureaucracy theme. The vast majority of people involved in the system, justices of the peace, parish constable, church warden, overseer of the poor, were unpaid. The state required them to do this according to their status, but more importantly, the parish required them to fulfil these roles. Behind the churchwarden, overseer, constable, lay the vestries of various types, the voice of the parish. As its own commonwealth, the most important aspect of the state to most people, for most of the time, was the parish. The link between the parish and the county to the state beyond was through the JP, and it's hard to emphasise just how wide their role was, all aspects of justice, but the cost of apprenticeships, vagrancy, dealing with riot and affray, seizing people, spreading false rumours. Their book of orders included action to be taken in the case of plague, regulatory matters like seizing illegally made candles, supervising the sale of corn in times of dearth. I could go on. It is on the backs of these upper members of the gentry or lower orders of the nobility and the knights of the shire that the English government rested. And it worked. Despite its unprofessional aspect, it worked because like most of the other aspects of local governance, it was participatory. And people had faith in the system. Again, that might seem strange to us, given the potential for corruption and the opportunity for the great and the good to influence all kinds of stuff. But the sheriff, the old face of the royal administration in the provinces, had largely been discredited by now, with many of them in the pockets of the magnates, in a way that the wider range of JPs could not quite be. It was participatory also, to quite a significant degree in society. So, in addition to JPs, 
constables and overseers, there were other tiers too, beadles, sextons, clerks, night watchmen, surveyors of the highway. Even excluding these lesser roles, given that there were 10,000 parishes in England and let's say five main office holders in each, about 50,000 people every year would have been involved in local government. In addition, many of these offices were elected for a year, so the involvement went even deeper, deeper and rotated. So in theory, over a five-year period, about half the population would have had some hand in local government. Ordinary people played an important role in governing their own societies, and the situation was similar in the boroughs. So a Venetian visitor in 1557 remarked of the boroughs that they were like other kingdoms and Christian provinces, governed by civil and imperial laws, but by municipalities, almost like a republic. In summary, England was a monarchy filled with little commonwealths and quasi-republics. The justice system, meanwhile, was popular. The Tudors loved their litigation. The records of the King's Bench and the Courts of Common Pleas show 13,300 cases at an advanced stage in 1580, which rose to 29,162 by 1640, and this trend was also reflected regionally and in church justice. Whatever the situation with the frequency of crime, litigation would hardly grow to such an extent in a system that nobody trusted. There is a question then about who participated, which is where the story becomes a little less positive, because the Tudor era sees the start of much greater stratification of society. Maybe that's the wrong way of putting it, because you couldn't get much more stratified than medieval England, and indeed, with serfdom, most people had possessed far fewer rights and access to law than in Tudor England. But serfdom and landholding peasantry carried mutual obligation with it, with the lords, and rights in common. And when a large percentage of the population became wage labourers, 20 to 30 percent of them, it was quite hard for those members of society to take up active roles in the vestry or the parish. So, look, some very clever historian advised that in looking at any historical situation, we should always ask who paid the price. Observations like this are the reason I never tried to become a professional historian because I'm simply incapable of such insights. I stand in awe of such incisive questions. And it is a relevant question here because there becomes a greater separation between those with some landed status and those without. So it is probably those without any kind of landed status who pay the price for all this participation. It is a trend which will grow into the 17th and 18th centuries. Despite this, it is clear that the justice system included people from quite a wide range of backgrounds. Litigants, for example, even in the central courts of Star Chamber, were commonly yeomen, husbandmen and traders. 40% of them, in fact, fell into those categories. At the Assize and Quarter Sessions, an analysis of the courts of Sussex by Cynthia Harrop showed that the grand jurors, the jurors of presentment, were dominated by gentlemen and substantial yeomen, but the role of petty jurors in the courts themselves were mainly yeomen and husbandmen. The constables, meanwhile, were drawn from 
the more prosperous and more prominent sections of village society. Harrop looked at the kinds of submissions made by the grand juries and concluded that they took no prisoners, as it were. They felt perfectly capable of saying it as it was, or as Harrop puts it, If judged by their decisions, grand jurymen were neither capricious, timid, nor overly concerned with the opinions of the social or legal establishment. Another characteristic of the justice system was in the large amount of flexibility and discretion embedded within it. Now, hang on just a goddamn moment there, Crowther, I can hear you say. Discretion was exactly what we need to remove from a justice system, isn't it? Justice must be uniform to be reliable. And I guess I'd be forced to agree, and at the central level, that is what is progressively happening as training and education improves and standardisation increases one set of rules for all. And legislation, of course, was common everywhere. However, we are still in a world where a few factors are very important. One is that of local custom, which remains very strong. Another is that legislation from the centre is often very draconian. We've not got yet quite to the extent of the bloody code of the 18th century, but punishments are still very harsh. You could be executed for grand larceny, and the definition of grand larceny was theft of goods worth more than 12p. If rigorously applied, the justice system would turn into a bloodbath, and so it was applied with local discretion. Discretion applied throughout the system. So magistrates, for example, could demonstrate a love of exemplary justice. Justice seemed to be done in no uncertain terms to demonstrate the danger of moving from the straight and narrow an elaboration of the theatrical element of public execution to discourage les autres as a deterrent, as it were. And in times of stress, conviction rates grew, so reaching 64% in the 1590s. So it's been rightly argued, and I think I had made the point in the Poor Laws episode before, that discretion can also mean arbitrary. On the other side, however, the scope for discretion existed at all levels. Litigants could forbear from bringing cases at all. Village constables and church wardens, in particular, held a critical role in mediating between the concept of order and justice held at the centre and the concept of custom and what was fair in the parish. So Keith Wrightson gives an example of a pair of watchmen interrupting some noisy drinkers and allowing them to be sent on their way rather than leading to prosecution, the point being that application of the law needed to be proportionate and acceptable in the eyes of local custom. This kind of latitude made sure that central regulation and local custom enjoyed a sort of precarious coexistence rather than coming into disruptive conflict. And as we've already heard, maybe four out of five cases never reached court but were sorted out by some kind of informal mediation. Now we all know, as I have said, that punishment in early modern England was quite horrendous. Quite apart from the whipping, the penalties of death for a wide range of petty offences. But here, in particular, lay a whole range of opportunities for magistrate and jurors to exercise discretion to knock the edges off it. One widely used technique 
was the partial verdict. So, let's say that the silverware half-inch to buy the dependent was worth £1. If convicted, and he obviously was guilty, the defendant could hang for the price of a plate. But if the jury decided that the plate was actually worth 6p, then, well, it wouldn't be qualify as a grand larceny and the defendant could just be duly convicted and whipped. Then the severity of the punishment would meet the severity of the crime. Now, this does cut both ways, to be fair. Partial verdicts could also be used to make punishment more harsh, to command, let's say, a branding rather than a whipping, or whatever it might be. Another route out of trouble was the gift to English society of our Thomas Beckett, benefit of the clergy, which meant a greatly reduced or great gentler punishment if defendants were allowed to take the neck verse, as it was called, demonstrate that they could read, even if they were clearly just repeating something they'd learned by rote, and qualify as clergy, despite quite clearly not being in holy orders. Finally, even those convicted could and often did apply for pardons. The key point here is that justice needed to show the possibility of mercy for it to be effective in a society where the potential for repression by the state, with no police force and indeed no standing army even, was very low indeed. Participation and trust in the system was a requirement. It is an irony of the English system that as legislation becomes more and more blood-curdling, and it did, especially in the 18th century, conviction rates duly fell. So in Elizabethan England, outside the times of panic, like parts of the 1590s, you had about a one in four chance of being convicted. In the reign of Queen Anne at the start of the 18th century, at the start of the era of the bloody code, you had only a one in ten chance of being convicted. It has to be said that as for so many things, the system looks very much male-oriented. Jurors and magistrates were exclusively drawn from the ranks of men, for example, and justice has been seen as part of a story of oppression of women. However, historians more recently have rather moderated that view. Women in particular were much more rarely on the other end of conviction. By and large, the areas where women were convicted are for cases of infanticide, witchcraft and lesser offences such as scolding. Scolding, of course, seems particularly hideous to modern ears, but it was very rare that a conviction would follow, and the hideous apparatus like the scold's bridle were very rarely used indeed. Witchcraft convictions were low in England comparatively, particularly outside periods of panic. Women were also involved through court sessions as witnesses or used to identify the witch's mark, or women of good character were used to account for defendants' character. There's plenty of evidence that women used the court system to pursue their own ends as well, particularly church courts. It's probably worth also saying that there were inefficiencies in the system, of course. So, if you were looking at the Elizabethan system in terms of its effectiveness in making sure criminals were brought to book, brook, then there were many gaps. So, simple things like apprehension of wrongdoers. People just didn't turn up sometimes. So at one Wiltshire court of 117 people called, only 67 actually came. In Cheshire, the whereabouts of 20% of those convicted 
was unknown, and overlapping jurisdictions often gave offenders ample opportunity to give justice the slip. Now look, we should return to Edward Thompson's three weaknesses of the British state. Its reluctance to resort to ruthless repression in periods of public disorder, that they were too attached to the liberties of their subjects and the rule of law, and they lacked an effective bureaucracy. It is worth noting that in the 1590s to 1630s, these were, without doubt, a period of years when the hand of justice was heavy. It's not until later in the 17th century when it could be remarked that these are, in fact, not weaknesses, but, as Steve Hendel puts it, luxuries afforded to a regime confident of its judicial supremacy. The elites of Elizabethan England were convinced they stood on the edge of chaos and they exercised justice accordingly, but the period saw the establishment of a system that ensured great social stability because it was participatory and because it was trusted from all ends. It's notable that justices paid at least lip service that the law should not just be a way of maintaining social order for the benefit of the rich, but also a ready defence to the poor. To answer a more general question, we might return to that question of how Elizabethan England managed to negotiate a period of warfare, harvest failure, rising crime, and yet avoid the rebellion of the early and mid-16th century. Last time, I pointed to the influence of the poor laws. This week, I ask you to consider that the answer also has something to do with authority. So Steve Hindle again points out that we're used to evaluating our understanding of states and political systems in terms of power. The success of the Elizabethan polity and beyond into Stuart England is that it is more readily understandable in terms of authority rather than power. So while power needs to be maintained by force, authority depends on a degree of reciprocity, the acceptance by the governed of the legitimacy of their superior's rule. The structure of the Elizabethan state, specifically in the relationship between centre and parish, delivered flexibility and reciprocity. And from that, an acceptance of authority rather than the need to exercise repressive power. That meant then that it allowed the successful management of the potential tensions between central priorities and local culture. It managed to reconcile the demands of royal justice and the expectations of folk justice, between litigation and reconciliation, between exemplary punishment and mercy, between institutionalised charity and casual charity. A large section of the population felt involved on a day-to-day basis in decisions and activities which were carried out locally and critical to local community life, but which were obviously national in orientation. So rights of litigation, both locally and at Westminster, the prosecution of criminals, service on juries, the exercise of parish office, all of these things have a national context to them. Critically, All these citizens not only had some element of control, commitment and involvement, but had a mechanism through the assize and quarter sessions and the grand jurors which sent information straight back to the centre about how they were feeling. And these events were wildly popular. 
People crowded in to be involved, leading to disasters such as the Petty Session, where the presence of 200 people caused the floor to collapse. Royal government and local government were two parts of the same system by the time Elizabeth's reign came to an end, and this involvement allowed the state to ride out a period of enormous social stress and was critical in the formation of the English state. Maybe it also points to why that system would fail to manage with the reign of Charles I and collapse into civil war. Because Charles utterly failed to understand the way it worked and the strength that this partnership gave to his kingdom when he said, Sovereign and subject are clean different things. Charlie I thoroughly misunderstood his own people and demonstrated his unfitness to rule. Sovereign and subject were not clean different things. They were part of a delicate integrated system and subject operated royal power locally. Now that was exciting. I may have got a bit carried away and if so forgive me. Next time, in a couple of weeks time, we are back to the knitting and I think we should draw Elizabeth's reign to a close with the last dribbles of war, politics and death. In the meantime then, good luck and have a fabulous fortnight. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.